Okay, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Cernig Podcast today. Very, very, very special guest. I'm super excited to have Mr. Joe Poznanski on. I'll say again, because Joe, you joined uh, me and my buddies on uh, one of my other podcasts, Two Talks in the Schlub, uh, way back in, uh, I want to say 2021 now, it's 2023. It's crazy to, to think that, but uh, for those who don't know, let me just do a quick rundown, Joe, and then I'll let you... Uh, I'll let you do the talking because that's what people are here for. But uh, in case you don't know, um, Joe has his own uh, Substack. It's called Joe Blogs. Please visit joepoznanski.substack.com. Uh, formerly, he wrote for Sports Illustrated, the Kansas City, Kansas City Star, The Athletic, among many other publications. He is the co-host of the podcast, my favorite podcast with Michael Schur, uh, co-creator of Parks and Rec, The Good Place, among other shows that you might be familiar with. Joe is also the author of Paterno, The Baseball 100, um, The Soul of Baseball, A Road Trip Through Buck O'Neill's America, and his new book, Why We Love Baseball, is due out in the fall of 2023. Did I get that right, Joe? You got it right, yes. <laughs> I think I have a, a whole page here. I can just keep going with the accolades <laughs> if you want. <laughs> we can just get into the questions. It's it's up to you. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's stop on the accolades immediately and... Uh, and and get going to the questions. I love it. All righty. Awesome. Well, my first question is a heavy hitter. I'll warn you in advance, but you are a uh, part of, of Charlotte. I also live in Charlotte. Uh, and you you spent a long time here before you moved away. And then, then you came back. Uh, recently, the Charlotte Knights unveiled a new logo. I want to get your thoughts on that logo. How do you like it? Uh, I like it a lot, actually. I, I don't know how many people can visualize the logo itself, but... Uh, I like it a lot. I like the new colors. Uh, I like the logo. Uh, I like the, the the fact that Knights are are actively trying to to get better and improve and 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 bring in uh, you know the the city. I, I think it's such a challenge uh, to be a minor league baseball team. I mean, it's just such a um, you know it's 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 always been tough to be a minor league baseball team. You you have only the tiniest amount of control over the players that you get. You have only the tiniest amount of control of how long those players stay with you. Uh, you have to play by whatever rules they decide to come up with. And, uh, and it's tough. Uh, it's, it's really tough to, to build a, a fan base and an audience. And, and uh, I think uh, the people there, uh, many of whom I know uh, are doing a, a terrific job. And, you know, Charlotte is, uh, a major league city, obviously, major league football, major league, you know, the NBA, you got major league soccer now. And, uh, and, you know, so it's tough to be the triple A baseball team in the middle of all of that. But, but I think they do a great job. I really do. Yeah. Overall, I, I love going to games there. Um, I wasn't crazy. I, 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 I guess, you know, I, I don't really care I, at the end of the day, what a logo looks like and everything, right. but <laughs> I think it is cool to have the alignment. It's got some of the same color schemes now as all the major league teams uh, that you mentioned. So I think that brings a little bit more familiarity uh, to, to everybody. And maybe that'll help uh, draw some fans and everything. Cause it is a, a more affordable experience and, you know, still fun, even though, like you said, there's those challenges. Yeah, I, I look, it feels major league-ish. I mean, it's a great yeah. stadium. It's it's right downtown. It's uh it's a cool atmosphere. It really is. Uh and I like that. I like that they've 
I like cities that go with one color scheme for all of their teams. I love it that everything in Pittsburgh is black and gold. I, that just, I think that's an incredibly cool thing. And Charlotte has this, I, I don't know that I love the Charlotte teal thing that they've got going, but they, but it, it's, it's too much a part of the city now to, to, to back off now. And, and so I like that they sort of jumped in with everybody else on the color scheme. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I was thinking about Pittsburgh too. That's funny that you <laughs> mentioned yeah. that. So um, not to embarrass you again with the accolades, but one of the things I'm most curious about in talking to today is uh, a little bit more about your journey into becoming a sports writer and you know how you got that start and where that love and that passion came from. Can you walk us through, you know, the, the early days, like what, <laughs> What made you decide that you wanted to be a sports writer to start? I, you know, so much of what happened to me uh, was pure luck and circumstance and and weird coincidences. I mean, I, you know, I, I, we moved to Charlotte. Uh, it's the first time I lived in Charlotte. We moved here when I was in high school. And I was, uh, I literally had no earthly idea what I wanted to do with my life. I had no clue. I went to, uh, to UNC Charlotte to study, uh, accounting. That was going to be my original thing was I went as a, an accounting major and, and, uh, I don't know if I told this story on the podcast last time, but, um, but it's, it's true. I, I remember, very vividly the day that I realized I wasn't going to be an accountant. I, and I was, I used to take the city bus. I said, I lived at home and I used to take the city bus to college and I was taking the city bus home and we were driving by a, uh, like a business park and there were people outside and, you know, they were smoking and, and talking. And, and I remember looking out the window and seeing all those people, specifically seeing the people themselves and thinking to myself, that's never going to be me that that is never that that is never going to be me standing out there you know holding a satchel and smoking and talking about numbers that's just never going to be me and coincidentally that was the day I failed out of accounting so it worked out really effectively um and the timing was great so i i went home and i had a typewriter uh that that i that i had been given uh, as a gift by my mother, uh, this electric typewriter. And I, and I bring it up because I specifically right now in my office, right next to me, I have uh, an electric typewriter that I that I love working on. Um, so I had an electric typewriter and I thought to myself, I'm going to send out a bunch of letters to a bunch of people across a wide variety of, of jobs and 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 uh, and options. And just tell them, you know, and the, the, I think the letters basically were like, hi, my name is Joe Posnanski. I'm a high school, I guess I was in, in uh, college then. I'm a freshman in college, sophomore in college. And uh, I literally have no idea what to do with my life. And your job seems cool. So that was literally what I did. And so I wrote to a bunch of people. I wrote to Bob Costas. Uh, it's it's something that, that we've uh, laughed about since then. Um but I wrote to a bunch of people. And one of the people I wrote to was the uh, uh, then sports editor of the Charlotte Observer, a guy by the name of Frank Barrows, who's no longer with us. And uh, and I I found his name and address in the paper, I guess. And I sent uh, sent him a, a note, and and he called, or he, I guess he called me. No, he he must have, he wrote back, 
and he said, um, hey, if, if you're interested in this, we we sometimes send out uh, people to high school games to write about them for 20 bucks, 25 bucks. You know, we call them stringers and we send them out to different games. And if that interests you, um, you know, we can we can do that. And I flipped. I just flipped. And and honestly, I loved sports. And I did not know that I loved writing. But as soon as he said that, as soon as he made that offer, I just thought, wow, this, this, this might be what, what I want to do. And, and, uh, um, first time I went out to a high school game, I remember it vividly. It was North Mecklenburg, uh, uh, girls team. And, uh, and I remember going out there and, uh, I, I remember I, I went with an actual reporter, uh, named D Orlando Ledbetter. And he kind of showed me how to, keep score and how to, how to get things down, how to go to talk to the coach afterwards for quotes. And, and uh, I was just smitten. I just thought this is exactly what I want to do. And so that, that's how it happened. I mean, it wasn't anything where I thought to myself, like, Oh, this is something that I can do, want to do. I honestly, if, if you had told me, I mean, the sort of the way I'm a first generation American and, and, uh, you know, I, I grew up, my parents, uh, were learning everything about America at the same time that I was. And I, if you had told me at the time, I just honestly didn't even think that was a, a profession being able to write about sports. I just didn't think that was a, a possibility for somebody like me. And, uh, once I realized that it was, it was, uh, uh, it was life-changing for sure. Yeah. I love that. And, um, I especially, you know, the accounting piece is funny to hear because one of my favorite things in life is to hear you and Mike nerd out about baseball stats and analytics (laughs) on the podcast. So I don't think that was a totally wasted educational venture there. Um, But so, you know, I think a a lot of people, um, you know, especially in the day of of social media here, they see sports writers and they see people who have access to athletes and for lack of a better word, they may think it's easy to do uh, that type of work, but it seems like what what you said, you know, just even to get your foot in the door. And then I'm sure that the early years was, um, you know, reps, you know, really, really uh, putting in the work, grinding it out, even to a certain extent, like, is that accurate? Is that what you would recommend to young aspiring sports writers to say, like, don't, don't try and, uh, you know, just land the biggest name, like, you know, work as hard as you can. Yeah, I mean, look, it was a lot different when I was younger, right? I mean, when in those days there was a pretty direct path. You would you would start at a little paper and work up to a little bit bigger paper, a little bit bigger paper, and sort of work your way up that way. It was fairly, it was a fairly, um, I wouldn't say it was a direct route, but it was a clear route. And it's a lot different now because there aren't as you know aren't newspapers anymore. I mean, there there's so few exist and and they have so few jobs and and even newspapers that that are in major cities don't necessarily cover the teams the way they used to but yeah for me i think one of the things that i had to learn very very quickly was that i needed to put every bit of my enthusiasm into every single story that i did and i was always enthusiastic about like i would sit around i like i when i first started at the charlotte observer as a full-time person i was working as an agate clerk which meant that i would be the one that would take results people would call in track meets and and uh, and basketball games and i would take the results i would put together the standings for the newspaper um so that was my job 
And it, it had a, enough downtime that I would pre- write practice columns all the time, like constantly um, just write about, but it was always about big stuff. It was always about things that were in the news, you know, major league sports, big things that were happening. And every now and again, I would get an opportunity to do, you know, a big, a big story. I, I remember while I was, as an agri clerk, I, I wrote a story about how hard it was to win uh, on the road in the NBA then and, and ended up talking to a bunch of uh, NBA coaches and all of that. So, so that kind of thing was always easy because it was like, this is everything I could have dreamed. Um, but I, but I realized fairly quickly, I hope, um, that I needed to put the exact same enthusiasm into, you know, when I covered a local softball team or I covered a high school game or I covered a, uh, you know, a a local golf tournament. I mean, like those were, I had that opportunity early and, uh, at first I think it's just natural. You're young and you're just like, oh, you know, this is fine, but this is not what I want to do. But two things. One, very often those were the very best stories that I would come across. You know, it's like I've been to uh, 25 Super Bowls, but but there are not that many stories at the Super Bowl. You know, it's cool that I've been to all those Super Bowls, but there, me and, you know, 500 of my closest friends, right? It's like everybody's out there writing about it. And if I'm, uh, meanwhile, at a at a high school football game where something remarkable happens, I'm the only one there, or one of very very few, and 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 there's a real opportunity. And I'd say many of the best stories that I've ever written uh, were in those environments. So I think that was the thing that I had to understand and and had to learn uh, was that you have to just every single story you do, you have to bring the same level of, of excitement, enthusiasm, curiosity. Uh, and I think that's the advice I give anybody. It's like when you, when you are starting out, uh, particularly just bring it, you know, just don't, don't ever think you're above anything because, because we're not. And, and very often you're going to find that the very best things that you write are the things that you didn't expect to be, uh, you know, as, as cool, uh, when you first started. Sure. Sure. So you have what I would consider a very loyal following. Um, there's a lot of, uh, writers or, or just celebrities anyone with a, a big social presence, uh, but not everybody gets, I would say the, the level of engagement that you get. Do you think that enthusiasm that you just talked about, like, does, is that one of the keys to, building an actual uh, relationship with your audience? I think that's right. I, I do. I think, I think people sense your enthusiasm. They sense here's, you know, look, this is not, I'm not saying anything new, but I, I think everybody looks around and sees a lot of cynicism out there uh, in not just in sports across the board. And, and some of that, cynicism is is you know people people like it you know sometimes it's that people want to 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 get that cynical point of view they want to get you know the 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 big arguments they want to get the hot takes i mean there's no question that's not to say that there's anything wrong with any of that but there's so much of that out there and i think what what has maybe separated me a little bit as far as engagement is that I don't really get into much of that. 
not to say that I'm never cynical or I'm never, uh, I never offer a hot take cause I'm sure I do, but I don't do that very much. And, and it's not, I don't like cheap shots. I don't like, I don't like cynical, uh, perspectives. Like I really don't. I, I, I tend to be pretty optimistic, uh, even even when you know optimism is not that easy to come by, and and I think I think people, not everybody, but but a lot of people like that, and a lot of people have really responded to that. So I don't have the biggest audience out there for, for sure, uh, but I would not trade my audience for anybody else's because I feel like I've got an audience that is not just incredibly loyal, but really smart and fun and funny. And they push me to be better uh, just by a lot of them. I've got, I, you know, my, my dad has told me this on numerous occasions that he like, he'll read my article and then he'll read some of the comments below it, which, you know, you should never do except in, on my, on my site. He's like, some of these people who read you are better writers than you are, you know? And, and, uh, and I think that's really cool. I think it's kind of true. I, I don't know that they're, you know, I hope they're, I hope I can hold my own, but I, I, there, there are some really, really smart, interesting, funny people out there who follow me and, and uh, they inspire me. They really do. And I, I think it's a big reason that it's so fun for me is that, uh, is that I have uh, this, this great audience of people that, uh, that, uh, you know, are there every day. Yeah, I, I really love that. And um you know, I, I think it's really interesting, too, because not that you talk about baseball exclusively, right, um, but a big portion of your content, whether it's what, what you write about now or what you talk about on the podcast, is baseball-related. And we sure. all know that baseball is struggling, um, especially for, for younger viewers, younger audiences, and things like that. But there's just this level of engagement that – I mean, I'd be hard pressed to find anywhere else. It, and it's just, it's so like, I, I, it just popped up in my um, podcast feed this morning that your latest podca podcast, and I know you talk about basketball cards and this one and everything, but like, I look forward to those so much because like, I, I tried to listen to some other baseball podcasts and yeah, I think it's that, that Sarah Lang scale thing <laughs> that you and Mike <laughs> talked about, like you, you and Mike have that. And as a true baseball nerd, like, I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, I think that's something that stands out for you, though, like growing up as a first generation American and like you said, learning the things the same same time as your parents. Like, when did it click for you that baseball was one of those things that you knew you were going to have a, a really big passion for? I, I was really young when I when I first really fell in love with baseball. And and it's and, and my father is the big reason. And I, and it's it's interesting. And it's something when I talk to to other people who whose parents uh you know came to America just before they were born like like with me it was important to my father that I learn baseball like that was part of what it was to be an american and and he learned baseball so he could teach his son baseball like that and that has always had a very like i i remember reading once um uh, uh, about uh, the Cleveland uh, baseball announcer, Herb Score, who was my, the guy I grew up listening to and a great pitcher in his day before he got hit in the eye with a, with a line drive. And, uh, and Herb Score used to, somebody said to him, you know, Herb, you never explain to people 
why they brought the infield in or why is this a bunting situation? Like he, when he would call the games, he would, he would avoid that kind of talk. And they said, why do you do that? And he said, because that's something for a father to be telling his son while listening to the game. And that, that really touched me because that was what it was like for me growing up. So, you know, the earliest memories I have are my dad, my father pitching me wiffle balls. Uh, you know, we used to have home movies that we would watch and that was, you know, most of the home movies were just my dad pitching me wiffle balls when I was a kid. And uh, it was, so I grew up with it. I grew up with it. And, you know, it, I, when I actually, you know, realized that I was, that baseball was going to be such a significant part of my life, I, I don't know. I wanted to be a baseball player like every kid you know that i knew and and then as time went on and i started writing sports uh i gravitated toward baseball it was the sport that that i i felt uh spoke to me the most i think it was the one i always felt like i could offer a little something more and uh and you know that's been obviously the case that I've, I've just finished my fourth baseball book and it's and it's called why we love baseball i mean it's you know it's it's definitely um it's definitely been a huge huge part of my life but it definitely started very young and it started with my father so sticking with baseball then joe um i know the negro leagues is also very important to you and you've done a lot of work um with bob kendrick and uh the negro league hall of fame um you know, why is it so important, you think, to the history of baseball that the stories from this from that league that they don't get forgotten? Yeah, I, well, it's just such a vibrant, colorful, wonderful part of the history of the game. And for years and years and years, it was ignored, um, actively ignored. And I you know, you can understand why it's a it's shameful that there needed to be an, a Negro leagues. It's shameful that uh, these incredible players uh, never got to play and we never got to see them. I mean, there's a, there's a real tragic element to that. And I think for years, that's part of the reason why nobody wanted to talk about it. You know, it's like, it's just, I, I think in the African-American community, it was like, Hey, that's a part of our past. We don't need to go back and revisit that. The white community was like, ah, what, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter that they, 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 you know, we, we never saw them play. And, and so I think for years and years, it, it was completely ignored. And look, for me, the connection directly goes back to, to my friend, Buck O'Neill. I mean, I, I had a, an interest certainly in, in the, the stories of the Negro leagues, you know, before I met Buck, uh, but it was, it was the same interest that I had in, in a lot of other things. Um, and it was getting to know Buck, uh, becoming friends with Buck, writing a book about Buck and, 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 uh, traveling the country with Buck that, that sort of opened my, my eyes and, and heart to this whole story in a completely different way. And, and now obviously it's, you know, incredibly important to me. And, and, you know, one of the, one of the major things in my life is, is the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City and uh, my, my friend and brother, Bob Kendrick. And uh, so, so that's all been something that has evolved uh, over time. And, and now it's a, it's a different thing. I write a little bit about this in my book. It's different because for years it was, he listened to these stories and nobody wanted to listen to the stories. 
now it's different because Major League Baseball has has uh, you know acknowledged that that the Negro Leagues were Major League, uh, and I think that uh, you know some things have have happened. Incredible um, research has been done, and and so it's a lot different. And I think everybody is now aware of the Negro Leagues and some of the great players in the Negro Leagues, uh, but it's it's still it's still a story that I think is so often misunderstood and misrepresented. And, and uh, so I, I think it's as important as ever, especially as, as you know, the game looks to the future, it's as important as, as ever to, to acknowledge that this is, this is a, a, a there's a piece of the Negro leagues that, uh, that there's the tragic piece we've talked about, but there's also a piece of the Negro leagues that was this joyful, baseball that that was that really express how this game is the true national pastime it's the true sport across race across uh, gender across everything that we we lose sometimes and and so i think that the story is more important than ever in the midst of all the projects that you're working on. I'm not sure if you've gotten a chance yet, but um, have you watched the Willie Mays documentary on HBO? I did. I actually had uh, the director uh, and, uh, and Colin Hanks though, who produced it. Yep. Uh, we had him on, uh, on the podcast. I really liked it a lot. Uh, that's a hard doc. I told Colin this uh, Colin, you know, like he's, he's my, yep. one of my best <laughs> friends now. Uh, but I told him uh, that, it's hard because Willie Mays was is a tough character, and especially as he's gotten older. I mean, he's 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 dealing with a lot of health issues, and he's he's not a sentimental guy. Like that's not like like with when you could talk to Henry Aaron, you know that you could you could really you know sense the warmth uh, of him, and, and it's harder with Willie Mays. Uh, and so I thought they did a great job of of I wouldn't say humanizing him. It's not that he's not anything less than 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 this this human person, but I think they 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 did a great job of getting at the heart of of this incredible, incredible athlete and incredible man. And uh, and I think that was very I think it's very difficult to do. I mean, he was look, he you know this, he was number one. On my in the, my baseball 100, I think he's the greatest ball player who ever lived. Uh, I think that he uh, is someone that didn't. Uh, he was never impressed with himself, so I think that always came across that you know other people were impressed, but he wasn't, and and he was distant at times and aloof at times, and uh, so I think it makes it difficult. It's it, there's there's not the same level of warmth i think that we feel for some of the other incredible players uh in baseball history so i i really liked the way the documentary was able to get somewhat at the heart of uh, of this incredible figure sure yeah and and i don't know if you remember this particular um comment in the documentary um also before i get to the comment i'm definitely going to uh take the audio of when you said colin was your best friend i know you were talking about a different colin but i'm gonna use that for myself <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> making my sure. ringtone <laughs> um but there's a there was a historian um that they were interviewing in documentary and um he had said something along the lines that uh true integration 
would have been adding the Negro League teams to Major League Baseball, like kind of yeah. like the ABA merger and the the NFL and whatever the the AFL, other yeah. Um, yeah. AFL yeah uh, league was, and then you would have had black ownership in baseball, and instead what it really turned out to be was just a poaching of all those best players. Like, That's right, you know, Hank and Willie and uh, a ton of others, and it really just crushed the foundation, you know, of of that league. Um, I had never thought about it before until I had heard that uh, comment, like, you know, should we be talking about, I guess, I guess the question is like, you know, we major league baseball, they rightfully so make a pretty big deal out of Jackie Robinson and Jackie Robinson day and, you know, things like that. But are we doing a disservice by not telling some of these other stories or being like more accurate with our storytelling? Um, Like, do you think we should push these narratives a little bit harder? Well, it it just so happens that you really crossed into one of my uh, uh, very big themes in in my upcoming book. Um, so you know the book is the countdown of the fifty most magical moments in baseball history, and they're actually, I can tell you, there are more than fifty moments in the book. They're actually one hundred and eight <laughs> moments in the book, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, obviously, I don't think I'm spoiling anything to tell people. Jackie Robinson's uh, first day in the major leagues is is one of the moments in the book. Um, but I don't write only about that moment. Uh, every moment in the book, I have a date on there. And and for the Jackie Robinson's uh, chapter, I've got six or seven dates on the top because I have the date that Jackie Robinson, you know, April 15th, 1947. But I also have July 5th, 1947, which was the day Larry Doby, uh, uh, you know, became the first uh, American League uh, African-American to play. And then I have uh, the date that uh, um, uh, the first black pitcher uh, played. And I had the date that Minnie Minoso became the first dark-skinned Latino to play in the major leagues, uh, or in Chicago, actually, specifically. Uh, and then I had the date that the Yankees finally integrated. And then I had the day that Buck O'Neill finally became the first black coach. And I have the day that Frank Robinson finally became the first black manager. It's been a long journey. And I think in some ways, um, we even diminish Jackie Robinson by making him the, the beginning and the end of the story. He knew he wasn't the end of the story. I mean, he spent the last decade of his life uh, pushing for a, a black manager. And, and it's, it's, I, I do think that there are numerous themes. I mean, you mentioned the idea of, of uh, incorporating a black team into, into baseball rather than, uh, you know, just, just incorporating the Kansas city monarchs. It was never even considered at the time. Obviously, I mean, Jackie Robinson himself was such a reach, and and you know was such a a difficult thing to to make happen. But there's no question that the the greatness of Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and and you know all of the other early ones, Willard Brown and 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 everybody in 1947 it was the end of the Negro leagues. It was the end of this very vibrant business in, in, in black communities across the country. And, um, and so, yeah, so there's a, there's a very sad element of that. I, I think it's part of the story for sure. And, and should not be forgotten. And I, I think in general, I think the, the simplification of, of the way baseball integrated 
uh, has has not served anybody well, and and including and I include Jackie Robinson. That I I just think I just think Jackie Robinson knew that he was the start of this long, not struggle and fight, but also this long journey that we are still on. I mean, you know, you look at last year, last year, this past season, uh, we had the first World Series since 1950 without an African-American player in it. I mean, that's that just tells you that, you know, it's a it's a constant journey. And and, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's going to that's going to change anytime soon. Sure. Well, I appreciate you sharing that and definitely looking forward to reading more about all of those moments and everything um, and why we love baseball. Uh, I have one more topic for you, and then I have some quick hitters uh, before I let you go today, Joe. Uh, I'm making it my goal every single time I talk to you to talk about one of your books. Last time we talked about the Baseball 100 because that had just come out. I'd love to talk about Paterno today. You can see my my Rose Bowl uh, champ <laughs> hat sure. on here. Um, and I, I'd like to, my first question around uh, that book is just how how do you get selected, you know, to write something like that? Because, um, yeah, I, I guess I'll just stick with that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't think you do get selected. Um, I, that was... You know that has been uh, going back to revisit the the whole Paterno saga. Uh, that was one of the most difficult uh, and challenging, and and uh, times and also a, a, a time that where I I have incredible pride for for what what happened, what I did in that. And, you know, I'm very very proud of that book. I I took a lot of criticism uh for that book and continue to still i still get criticized uh, but I, I it doesn't matter because i know uh how good that book is and and i'm and i'm incredibly proud of it uh i wrote a story about joe paterno for sports illustrated uh, in 2009 maybe and his family really really liked it and I, they asked me, would I ever have any interest in writing a book about Joe? And they, I think everybody knew that, you know, his, his career was finally coming to an end. And I, I think everybody kind of knew 2011 was going to be his last season. Uh, it obviously turned out to be his last season, but I didn't think that anybody thought it was going to end that way. Um, so everybody kind of knew that. And so they, they wanted to know if I'd be interested in writing a book. And Joe was, Joe himself was not that thrilled with the whole idea, as you might imagine. And, and I didn't know how I felt about it either. Uh, you know, I didn't, I was not a Penn state guy. I, I didn't know Joe Paterno any more than, than anyone else. I, I, you know, had just written that one story about him, uh, for sports illustrated. Um, but I was fascinated. I was utterly fascinated by him. I was fascinated by the life he'd led, uh, you know, all of these things that now have been overshadowed, but you know, the, the guy was sportsman of the year. He was, he was the grand experiment. He was, he, you know, he'd been with the same place for 50 years, uh, and, and had built up this reputation, not only as a great football coach, but as a leader of men and, and, uh, you know, as the, percentage of graduates of his classes are, are, you know, off the charts and, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And of course there are no, all the other problems, you know, the later, the, some of the legal issues, uh, some of his players went through and, and, 
you know, him continuing on, you know, well past when most people thought he should. And so there was, there was a lot there. And I thought this is, this is a really, really good book. The only thing I need uh, them to tell me is that it's my book. I don't want to do a book with Joe Paterno uh, and I don't want to do a book. I mean, I want to talk to all of them. I want all of them to be a part of it, but I, it had to be my book. And, uh, and so we went through that uh, for a while and finally uh, Joe agreed to, to, to let me do it and and said he would, he would uh, talk to me after the season. And, uh, and I moved up to state college actually uh, to, to write the book. And then of course uh, I was, I was going along writing the book, talking to all of the people around him, getting all the good and bad and everything else that was Joe Paterno. Um, and, uh, and then of course the, the Sandusky uh, thing happened uh, right in the middle of it. And uh, suddenly I had a very different book and a very different uh, thing to do. And, and, uh, and, you know, it led to where it led. So had you actually, well, first I, I think it's so cool that from one piece yeah, I think I think it just speaks to again like work ethic and just showing up and doing doing the best job you can. One piece got you got you the in <laughs> with the paternos <laughs> right? to, to write the book. Um I think that's really cool. Um were had you even started writing before November 5th, 2011, or were you still like in the process of interviewing people and, and just kind of putting together your thoughts for the book? Yeah, I was still I had not written anything. I was still very much in the in the gathering process, I knew, you know, I wasn't really going to spend a lot of time with Joe uh, himself until after the season was over. I mean, that was a big, that was a big part of it. He's like, don't bother me during the season. <laughs> and uh, so I had talked to all, I mean, I had spent hours, countless hours with his family, uh, with his sons, with his daughters, um, you know, with his wife, with, with, the uh, you know, with people around there who knew him with people in the community. And then of course, with many, 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 many of his former players. So I had been gathering for a long time, well, for a few months and I had a ton. I mean, I just had a lot of, of stuff. Um, but I was not, I had not written and I don't know that I even had started thinking about how I wanted to order the book when it happened. I, 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 I think I was still in that process of, you know, is it going to be chronological? Is it going to be, am I going to start here? And and I wanted to see how that season was going to turn out because that season was going in interesting directions. Um, so I, I really had not. And then of course, November 5th happened. I was actually supposed to be going to see um, John Capaletti. Uh, I was literally I think that Monday, so the, 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 uh, you know, indictment or whatever, uh, came down from the, from the office, uh, on, uh, November 5th, which was a Saturday. And then on Monday, I was supposed to be going out to LA to spend some time with John Capaletti. And, uh, obviously, uh, that didn't happen. And, and I stayed there in state college and, the next week was obviously explosive and, and, uh, you know, I think Joe was, was defiant. He wasn't going to quit. And then the board fired him, uh, by, by, uh, letter, you know, by courier essentially. Uh, and then at the end of the week after he had been fired, uh, he found out he had cancer. I mean, like it was, it was an incredibly 
uh, it, it's a week I'll never forget, obviously. And, and so then, you know, all of this, my mind is completely scrambled. Everything that I've done is kind of like, I know it's going to get into the book somehow, but I don't know in what way it all felt a little bit useless. And, and now I was just sort of, uh, on the wave, you know, just trying to hold on for dear life as, uh, as the wave came crashing down. And of course, uh, I spent some time with Joe over the next, you know, few weeks, but he was very sick. Uh, and then he died in January and, and, uh, I was left with a, with a, uh, a scandal and a book to write and a life to try to be somewhat, you know, as, 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 and that's the thing I used to think about every day. I would look myself in the mirror and I'd say, you know, you have a, the, you have a little responsibility here and your responsibility is not just to tell the story of the scandal. Your, your responsibility, the reason you got this writing, this book is you're talking about a life. You're telling the story of a full life. And, uh, and I, you know, that was, that was what I tried to do. And that was, uh, you know, as, as hard as anything as, uh, that I suspect I'll ever have to do. Sure. Definitely can't predict a moment like that. Um, did you, do you feel like, and maybe you were thinking about it in the moment or whatever. I was with a buddy at a bar because it was a Saturday, like you said, and we saw it pop up on the screen. At the at that point, I had to be 22, 23 years old. I vaguely remembered who Jerry Sandusky was. Right. Um, didn't didn't totally register. And you know, it's a Saturday night. Sunday comes around, it's pretty quiet. Monday, bam, it like yeah is a wildfire just just out of control but and then like you said by wednesday he's fired by the board so it's not even a full week that you know everything everything happens um did you like on when was the moment where you were like oh this this is gonna get a little crazy like did, did you have that moment or look as soon as the indictment came down as soon as the papers came down um i i realized that something you know, and, and here's the thing i should say i knew that that I knew about the Sandusky scandal. I knew that there was, you know, I did not know about the connection to Joe, right? I knew about the Sandusky thing. I knew that that Joe had, you know, look, he was he he worked, he was Joe's defensive coordinator, so so uh, there might be some vague uh, connections. And when the when the uh, you know that Saturday when the indictment came down, the uh, uh, attorney general's office um basically cleared him i mean they basically said like hey this is not a, about joe paterno this is about jerry sandusky and blah 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 and then as people started making more and more connections people started saying well wait did joe do enough to to stop this from happening and then suddenly you had some people who were pretty opinionated about it uh in the in the you know police uh departments and you know people came out and basically said that Joe had had you know not done enough to stop it, and and then of course you know conspiracy theories start coming out that Joe actually had something to do with it, and this and that and the other. And after a while, it became where you couldn't it, it stopped being a Jerry Sandusky scandal, and it started being a Joe Paterno scandal. Yeah. Uh, and look, he there was a lot involved in that, including the fact that Joe, in my view, uh, shouldn't have been coaching anymore. I mean, he, like, he should have, he should have stepped down already. He was, he was in his seventies and, and there was just no reason. Like he don't, he'd done everything he needed to do, but, but you know, there, there was, 
there was a lot of good in in Joe Paterno, a lot, but there was also this, I think, fatal flaw of of really being unable to let go. And I think that that it put him in situations where things got away from him, including the Sandusky scandal, and uh, and so it it uh, it started to become about that. It started to become about that, and then of course, lots of he made lots of enemies through the years, and you know he was very. Uh, he was very pious, right? He was very much a, a guy that that didn't mind saying that other people didn't live up to uh, to their to their standards, right? And so a lot of people were more than happy to to see him go down, and and it got ugly. And and then of course, I you know as a writer in the middle of it, I kind of you know people started you know questioning me, and 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 so that got a little bit tougher. And I I had to figure out a way to write the book the way I believed it should be written knowing full well that after I wrote the book, there would be plenty of people who would say, you know, that I was an apologist for him or I was this or that. And I, and I tried not to worry about it. I mean, I just don't know what you can do. I knew once the scandal had become clear and once Joe had gotten sick, I knew no matter how I wrote the book, people were going to hate it. At least, at least a, a huge percentage of people. And you know that's 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 no fun. That's you never you never write a book uh, with the hopes that oh I hope a whole bunch of people hate it. You know I mean that's not <laughs> exactly the dream. Uh, but I knew it, and so that book became something more than you know like like now. Of course, I mean I'm I've got why we love baseball coming out, and I can't wait. I can't wait for it to come out. I can't wait for people to see it. And that one was much more like a all right, I, I have a responsibility here and a responsibility to, to do something, uh, to write this book exactly how I believe it should be written, to tell the truth as I see it and uh, let the chips fall. But that's not, that's not the same level of excitement that you feel about writing uh, other books for sure. Sure. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Uh, I will say as objective as I can be, someone who grew up a Penn state or went to Penn state, um, you know, was there through the paterno years. I feel like it was a fair uh, description of of who he was, and I was really appreciative. And I mean, it was just a thrill. Um, I want to ask you because it's been you know twelve years since then. This is the last question on this, and then we can do the quick hitters to finish this up. Um, you wrote a particularly striking um, section toward the the end of the book here about a conversation that you had with Joe. Um, after everything that happened. And um, it says, we were sitting at Joe Paterno's table, me and him alone. And he asked me to stop questioning for a moment. This was a couple of weeks after he had been fired when the madness was at its height. He had just been through a dreadful coughing fit and his face was still red from the effort. He asked me, so what do you think of all this? I told him that it was crazy, but that's not what he was asking. <laughs> I thought that line was brilliant. Um, and he said, what do you think of all of this? He asked me again. I had not intended to include this in the book. It was personal moment. It was a personal moment between writer and subject. But as the story has played out, I decided it was important. I told him that I think that I thought he should have done more when he was told about Jerry Sandusky showering with a boy. I had heard what he had said about not understanding the severity, not knowing much about child molestation, not having Sandusky as an employee. But I said, "You are Joe Paterno. Right or wrong, people expect more from you." He nodded. He did not try to defend or deflect. He simply said, I wish I had done more again. And then he descended into another coughing fit. 
I just think about, you know, I think about like a, a dark, you know, night at that kitchen table, probably uh, where, where you spent um, a lot of time. And, and obviously he's really struggling from a health perspective and mentally, I'm sure he's struggling from everything that happened. Um, do you still feel that way? You know, when, when he asked you to really answer the question and you told him what you think, like, is that still your, your belief 12 years later or is time like made you think differently about the situation? Um, um, it's a good question. I, I honestly have not, like, I've not revisited that scene very much since, since it happened. You know, he was, he was very sick. I, I, I believed then and believe now that Joe Paterno did not knowingly do anything to encourage Jerry Sandusky's crimes. I, I, I feel that strongly. I it just, it's, it goes against every single thing the man represented. But I think what I was saying to him then is what I said to you earlier. And, and I think the, he, he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't let go. And he wouldn't acknowledge that the as he got older, he was diminished in various ways, you know, and and it just it happens to all of us. And and I think what he was what he was asking me was, you know, hey, what do you think? How do you think I did? You know, I mean, I, that's that's how I took the question. How do you think I did? And. I could have said to him, I really could have, like, look, I don't think that you did anything knowingly uh, wrong here. I think you were as fooled as everybody else in the entire community. Uh, and I think that you were not focused on it. I think you're, you know, you were focused on other things. And, and you know, that's just, that's, that's. I think how most people are and nobody wants to know that nobody, everybody wants to believe they're the hero of the story. But if something's happening next door to you and you sort of have a sense, maybe how many people are going to step in and do something. It's, it's just, it's a rare, rare quality. But what I told him and what I believed was that Joe Paterno was supposed to live up to the highest ideals. That was the whole point of Joe Paterno's life was that he was to live up. He was the guy who, if the neighbor was, was, was doing something, he was the guy that should step up and stop it because that's what he lived. That's what he preached. That's what he represented. So that's what I told him. And I, I agree with that part of it. I, I think it's, I think it's shameful the way that his life was, was, completely obliterated uh, all of his achievements, all of the good things he did, all of it were just completely forgotten. And you say the name Joe Paterno now, and it doesn't mean the same thing, except to Penn State fans, who I think still hold on, and and rightfully so. Um, I think it's a shame. I think it's, I think it's a tragedy. And I think people who always, you know, what I'll get all the time are people who will say, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fall, just like Bill Cosby or just like somebody like that. And I'm no, there's <clears throat> nothing. Bill Cosby committed his own crimes. You know, yeah. nobody, nobody believes that Joe Paterno committed any of these crimes. The, 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 
the question was, did Joe Paterno live up to our highest ideals? And I think the answer is he did not. And I think he acknowledged that he did not. And, and that's, you know, he, he, he had to live with it and, and the punishment was swift. Uh, but, but I think that, that at the end of the day, Joe Paterno lived a, a life uh, that is uh, pretty admirable leading up to, to the way it ended. And, and I don't think that all of those years and all of those lessons should be just completely washed away. I think I started the book off by saying that Joe Paterno is, uh, has been called a, a, a devil and an angel and a, and a sinner and a, and a saint and a, and all of these things. And I think that's right. I think he lived a very, complicated life but it was uh but it was a full life and and that's what i tried to capture i think in the book yeah yeah very cool well thank you for sharing and my two cents is that book stands up with any of your other ones given the challenges and um you know just the public perception around the name these days so definitely if if anyone's interested take a take a dive into that one as well um all right joe some quick hitters uh to have a little fun uh finish things off here um what are what are one or two things you would say that you are most excited about for the future of baseball? I'm really excited about the rule changes this year. I am really I just wrote about them for Esquire. It's coming out next month. Uh, I'm really excited about them. Uh, I'm excited about the pitch clock. I I I think it will definitely quicken the pace and shorten the game, which is obviously its point. I am kind of hopeful that it does even more than that. That it it sort of makes uh pitchers not go max effort on every pitch the way they are now and and maybe maybe strikeouts go down just a little bit and maybe hitters uh, are a little bit more active and uh I don't know I mean so I'm really excited about that I'm even a little bit excited about the the rule that uh, there will be no shifting now I I've had mixed feelings about the no shifting uh for for a long time now uh, in part because it's shifting has always been a big part of the game, but in part because I just didn't know or think that that changing the rule would would affect much. You know, I mean, I, I guys like Joe Sheehan, who I respect a lot, uh, believe that it's going to make things worse because it's going to really encourage uh, hitters, particularly left-handed hitters, to pull the ball all the time uh, now that there's no you know fourth outfielder or whatever. Um, but I I kind of I'm kind of excited about it. And I, and I think the reason is I think it's going to look a lot more like baseball the way we used to remember it. And, you know, I don't know what that's going to mean, what are going to be the, the consequences, what are going to be the benefits. I don't know the answer to any of those questions yet, but I like the idea that second baseman is going to be standing where second baseman stand and shortstops are going to be standing where shortstops tended to stand. And, you know, look, they'll pinch the middle and, and it'll be, you know, we'll, we'll, it's not like it's going to be this extreme thing, but I don't know anybody who liked it where a left-handed hitter hit a line drive into the outfielder. And then the second baseman caught it because he was just standing out there. You know, that's just, it's smart. It's smart baseball. I don't blame any team for shifting. But I'm I'm interested and excited to see what it's going to look like without that. Sure, sure. The one that would drive me the craziest is the line drive or the the ground ball, hard ground ball up the middle. Oh yeah, and, uh, the guy's <laughs> just standing there. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know how much of this shifting is going to change that because literally shortstops are going to be able to stand, you know, right, almost right, right behind left. second base. Yeah, yeah. So it'll still be only one or two steps, but 
but even that it's one or two steps. I mean, I, I think the when you saw a guy just standing there and fielding a ground ball, when you're just ripped up the middle, you thought, okay, well, great. So their, their analytics team is good. That doesn't mean that's not fun baseball. I'm not rooting for <laughs> analytics teams. I, I, I appreciate them, admire them. I like them. I like talking to them, but I don't, want them controlling the game. I want baseball players to be controlling the game. So, uh, so I'm a little bit excited about, about what these rule changes are going to do. Sure. All right. Two quick hitters left. My buddies and I were talking about this. The only time in franchise history that this team has been any good is when we were, were kids, except for this past year, because they made the playoffs. But do you think the Seattle Mariners, (laughs) (laughs) do you think they win a world series sometime in the next 10 years? Yes or no. Um, I mean, no, but, but I, they might, they might look, I, not to get back to my book, but we'll get back to my book. Uh, I was, you know, there's so many moments. I mean, when you're talking about 50 most magical moments, you were leaving out so many moments and I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about whether or not to include double uh, Mm -hmm. in, in the book. That's the, the Edgar Martinez double that scored Ken Griffey Jr. all the way from first against the Yankees to win the uh, 95 ALCS. And there are so many other moments that are not in the book that were probably every bit as magical and important as that moment. But it's all the Mariners have. It's all they've got. And I just, I feel so bad for a group of fans that like, like they have, they've never been to the World Series. They're the only team that has never been to the world series. I mean, like the Rays have been to the world series and the Rockies have been to the world series. So I, 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 to, to give it away, I did include it in the book because I just, I just feel like it's this moment for this team. And, and I would love to see them win a world series. And I love some of the things they're doing. I love Julio uh, Rodriguez. And and I just, uh, I'm, I'm, we'll see. It's going to be tough for them to win a world series though. Yeah. How, how crazy is that one moment to say, like, it's, it's kind of sad that it's like their only moment, but at the same time, it saved baseball. (laughs) It did save baseball in the city. It's true. (laughs) Very cool. All right. Last thing I want to show you, I made this specially for you. Uh, So on the first episode that you and Mike opened up cards on the podcast, I don't know if you remember this, but you, you found a Chuck Knobloch card. Sure. And you started for you know a minute or two talking about how Chuck Knobloch would would be a perfect candidate for the raffle uh, to get a, uh, a baseball 100 style uh, typewritten letter uh, to whoever wins that. I want you to know that you were literally talking about me, and so oh, I, there I we put go. this <laughs> I put this collage together. I I counted up total. I have 34 total cards. Uh, two two autographs of Knobloch. Um, most of these that you can see in the collage are, are Knobloch. You can see in the autograph section that I have a, a few other um, random players here and there. But I, I was like, if if Joe doesn't get anybody who selects <laughs> Chuck Knobloch <laughs> in the raffle, I was like, I want him to remember this and I want him to to write me because I would love a Chuck Knobloch typewritten essay. <laughs> Chuck Knobloch was a good player, man. You know this. He was a really, really good player. I, I always thought of Chuck Knobloch that his, his career gone a little bit differently. Obviously, he had the throwing yips later and everything else that went on. Uh, the guy was Craig Biggio. I mean, he was basically yeah. the same guy. And, and uh, so, 
Yeah, Chuck Knobloch, heck of a player. I, I love seeing the Chuck Knobloch with the Royals uh, card because <laughs> yep. uh, that was uh, that was not the best version of Chuck Knobloch at that point. No, no, it was not. Although I, I think I vaguely remember. Um, so that would have been 2002 uh, was was his final year. And uh, still a huge Knobloch fan at the, at this point, um, even though his career had totally tailspin, but spun by that point. Um, I'm pretty, I, I should have looked for this, but I, I have the picture from the, um, God, what was the paper called? Post Standard in Syracuse, New York, sure. uh, where, where I grew up. And Knobloch made the front cover because he had probably his best game of the season against the Yankees, um, you know, when the Royals were just awful and, and a terrible <laughs> you know, franchise and everything. And I was just so like the only time I've ever actively rooted against the Yankees just to say like, <laughs> Oh my God, I want Chuck Novelock to do well. Cause I, I just freaking loved him and, and everything. So um, awesome. <laughs> very cool. Well, Joe, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, so, so great um, to to get to reconnect with you. And I'm definitely looking forward to the book that's coming out. And I'll just reiterate to anyone who's listening to this, check out Joe Blogs, uh, Joe Substack. I wait for that on pins and needles every day, just like I, I, I wait for the podcast episodes. It's definitely worth uh, the time and the investment uh, to support an independent uh, writer like Joe. So I uh, just really appreciate you taking the time, Joe, and, and definitely hope we can um, continue to build a, a relationship here. Maybe, maybe one day we'll meet since we're both in Charlotte. <laughs> Might happen. Absolutely. No, thank you. Thanks a lot.